Hello, hello. Thank you for joining me today. I'll be chatting with Dr. Abby Smith-Ryan about fitness, metabolism, and body composition. Just to be clear, this episode is not about how to look like a magazine model. It's about understanding your body and what you can do to support your long-term health. It's about evidence-based strategies that busy people like you and me can put into practice. Dr. Smith-Ryan is a professor of exercise physiology and sports nutrition at UNC Chapel Hill. In this role, she directs the Applied Physiology Lab and co-directs the Human Performance Center. She's also actively involved in many professional organizations like the National Strength and Conditioning Association, the American College of Sports Medicine, and the International Society of Sports Nutrition. Dr. Smith-Ryan is also extremely passionate about mentoring students and sharing the practical applications of academic research. Her work spans a wide range of topics, from how nutrients and meal timing impact body composition and exercise performance, to how our bodies respond to food restriction, and how our metabolism changes during menopause. In this episode, Dr. Smith-Ryan explains what the term metabolism really means, how it's measured, and how much we can and cannot control it. We also explore body composition and why the number on the scale is not the best predictor of health. Finally, we discuss the benefits of different types of exercise and how to reap these rewards without devoting endless hours every week. One of the takeaways from this conversation that I can't emphasize enough is that we need to prioritize our muscles, especially as we age. This is particularly important for women who have often been taught to prioritize being as small as possible. I'm really grateful for Dr. Smith-Ryan's work and her voice in advocating for women's health. For more of Dr. Smith-Ryan's work, please check out her website at www.asmithryan.com. Her website has links to her many publications, as well as her accounts on Twitter and Instagram. Without further ado, let's dig in. Welcome to Get Real Health. I'm your host, Dr. Chana Davis. This show cuts through the noise to give you science-based insights from real experts so that you can make smart, healthy choices. Welcome to the show, Dr. Smith-Ryan. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks so much for the invitation. Happy to be here. All right. Why don't we get started with a little bit about you? Can you just give a bit of your story and how you got to where you are and where your interest came from? Absolutely. So just real briefly, I am an academic and researcher. I've been in the university actually here at UNC for almost 11 years. And I have a huge passion for improving health and quality of life through research or evidence-based practice. And I realized a long time ago, nobody was going to read my boring papers. And so tried to find different ways to communicate and translate that information so people can actually utilize some of the practical studies that we do in the lab. Well, I'm one of those people who actually reads your boring papers. I found your paper because I'm actually going through the menopause transition right now. So when I have something that I'm facing, I turn to my doctor, but I also turn to PubMed. So I found a really cool study of yours that I wanted to kind of use as a springboard for today's discussion. So you did a study on how things change in terms of metabolism and body composition through the menopause transition. So can you just give an overview of that study and then we can kind of go into more general discussion from there? Absolutely. And I'll preface it in that my research is really focused on exercise and nutrition interventions to improve health and quality of life. I don't just study women, but over the last, I would say, eight years, a lot of my focus has turned toward women. And it's really stemmed from a lot of the conversations with participants and other women that there's a dissatisfaction with how we feel and how we look and 
then particularly as we transition to menopause, there's so many things that happen that there aren't answers to, and it makes us more tired and more dissatisfied. And so have really tried to target that. And this particular study, there is good data that suggests some of these changes are happening as women embark into menopause, but there's still a lot we don't know about what is actually happening to our body and to our metabolism and some of the semantics. And really, it was a foundational question to then allow me and others to ask, well, how do we then minimize some of those changes by lifestyle aspects related to exercise and nutrition? And it's not surprising that the study showed that there's an increase in fat mass, particularly in the abdominal region and a decrease in muscle mass as we transition to menopause. There's also a change in metabolism, which I know we'll come back to, but essentially metabolism slows down a little bit. So I don't find any of that surprising, but I think what we found most surprising that has really changed some of our next steps is that those changes were happening in perimenopause, which you refer to. And perimenopause is really just that transition when menstrual cycles stop becoming regular. Most women actually don't even know that they're in perimenopause until some of the symptoms start arising. And those also can vary. So things like hot flashes and fatigue and trouble sleeping, that's, I think, a really important point because it's when women are often taking care of everyone else. They have children and spouses and careers, and they spend less time on themselves. And what we're identifying is that's really the time where these lifestyle changes can have a big impact to improve their health and quality of life once they hit their 50s and 60s. Mm -hmm. I really appreciate that you're bringing some evidence to this discussion because you can only get so far with anecdotes, even though it's cool that your study does align very well with what you hear anecdotally. Mm -hmm. So your study looked at how body composition changes with menopause. And I wanted to talk about why this matters aside from aesthetics. And so things like android to gynoid ratio. And so what are the things that you measure and how do those tie to health and which ones kind of matter? for other reasons? I love this question. So I should have said body composition is one of my areas of research. And I think it's highly misunderstood, particularly among women. And it's because there's been so much emphasis on body fat. And honestly, I think that's the least important aspect. It does become more important to look at, well, how much muscle is there? How does that change? And then where are we storing fat? Because we know, so you bring up android to gynoid, which I like to call like apple-shaped versus pear-shaped. That impacts our cardiometabolic health, so risk for cardiovascular disease and diabetes. And so understanding not only how that is a single time point, but how that changes over time can help prevent some of these chronic diseases that are even more prevalent in women. So if somebody overall looks relatively lean, but has an unfavorable fat distribution, can they actually have an elevated risk? Would that compare to someone who has a more cardiovascularly favorable shape, but is overall bigger? Yeah, we've studied this a lot. The first example that you refer to is called skinny fat or normal weight obese, which is very prevalent. So someone might have a normal BMI body mass index, but when you actually measure their composition, they have low levels of muscle and high levels of fat, although their height and weight ratio is normal. 
So that increases their risk of a number of chronic diseases. Whereas if you compare that to someone that has excess body fat, but also has good muscle and muscle quality, they're actually at a lower risk for a lot of these health consequences than the first example. That's fascinating. It's really important to get out there, right? So important and not a conversation that many physicians have, particularly because one, they're not measuring composition in a clinic and it's really focused on these BMI parameters. But our research and others have really shown that if you can focus on muscle mass, particularly preventing loss as we age, which is a very common thing, we know it's directly linked to health and quality of life. Yeah. So why is the presence of muscle mass in women so important? Because that's something a lot of women are going to be resistant to focusing on. Well, it's against everything we were taught. I just need to weigh less is what I've been told. But what happens when we restrict calories or diet, often we're losing muscle and that is impacting, one, it makes us easier to gain weight over time, but it impacts metabolism. But muscle, when we think about just the ability to carry groceries and get out of bed and walk upstairs, another key piece, muscle is a very large disposal of glucose. So it allows us to utilize the carbohydrates that we do consume and prevent things like insulin resistance. And so there's so many benefits, even when you look not just about the size of the muscle, but we also look at the quality of the muscle. So larger people have more muscle. For example, someone that's severely obese is going to have more muscle, but we want their muscle to look less like a ribeye and more like a fillet, lower intramuscular fat. And the way we tackle that is with diet and exercise. So let's get into some of these general concepts that I think there's a lot of misunderstanding around. So People might say, for example, this person has a good metabolism, this person has a bad metabolism, my metabolism slowed down. You're actually able to measure these things. How do you as a researcher define metabolism and what are you really measuring? Metabolism can be referred to in many different ways, but essentially we're looking at 24-hour energy expenditure. How many calories do you expend throughout the day? And that is influenced by a number of things how much muscle mass you have, how big you are, what your age is. And so when we say someone has a slow metabolism, typically that would mean that their measured metabolic rate is lower than estimated for someone their age, height, weight. A faster metabolism would be the opposite, that they have a higher rate of energy expenditure. And so there are ways you can measure it. You can also estimate it. So that's where a lot of times Usually I find people refer to as a slow metabolism is when they feel like they gain weight without eating. And there's other aspects that are involved in that. But metabolism most often is referred to as energy expenditure, caloric expenditure. Can you speak to some of these kind of metabolic chambers where you actually do measure it? Well, yeah. So the gold standard is, well, you can measure it with an isotope. So where you would drink a doubly labeled water, like a heavy water, and you can estimate energy expenditure that way. Another way is to look at basically a sealed room where it measures changes in temperature while someone is in a room for an extended period of time. It's similar to how we identify calories in food. A bomb calorimetry changes in temperature 
when changing or burning that fuel. It can be done in a human by looking at those changes in body temperature in a sealed chamber, not something you could measure at home by changing temperature. Mm-hmm. What are some of the factors that impact metabolism, for example, men versus women or women in stages of life? First of all, where do we see differences? And then second of all, what might actually cause those differences? Well, one I should say, most time people think that they have a slow metabolism. It's really not that slow. There's other things that are influencing it. But when we look at some differences between men and women and metabolism, just size of the person differs. So if a man is bigger, they're going to burn more calories. There's this myth where people say muscle burns more calories than fat. It's only about like 30 more calories. That face value isn't true, but what happens is muscle requires a lot of calories to rebuild and regenerate. And so it's more energetically costly, let's say at nighttime during repair. And so gram for gram, it's not much more energy expenditure greater, but it is when you look at the cost of calories it takes to rebuild. So someone with more muscle or stimulating the breakdown of muscle through something like resistance training will increase metabolism or support a higher metabolism. There's also hormones that influence that. Lots of different hormones can impact metabolism. Thyroid is often one most people are familiar with. Different thyroid hormones can shuffle that. And we know a lot of times thyroid hormones change throughout a lifespan, which can impact metabolism. I was chatting with a friend about this the other day. So certain drugs can cause people to gain weight or lose weight. And are they affecting the metabolism or are they affecting appetite or they're different mechanisms, I suppose? Yeah, definitely different mechanisms, but I would say both. So if you look at something like a thyroid pharmaceutical, that would impact metabolism. Whereas if you look at something like an antidepressant or on the reverse, like an ADHD medication, those often influence appetite and some of our appetite hormones that then impact our food intake. Mm -hmm. One thing that would be useful maybe and just expanding on this conversation of metabolism is breaking down kind of the different subcomponents. Because I was surprised when I learned that your resting metabolism is such a big piece of the pie. And it explains part of why exercise doesn't tend to move the needle on body composition as much as you might expect. I do think it's an important component to really understand. So you're right, resting metabolic rate, the amount of calories we would burn if we just laid on the couch all day is the majority. It's about 70% of the total daily caloric expenditure that we have. It's important to realize, though, that that can be impacted, for example, by the size of the person. A few things you can do to impact that. But yes, resting metabolic rate is a large component. The other pieces that we often try to target in an intervention would be non-exercise adaptive thermogenesis. And I call that all the moving around and the fidgeting, kind of the extraneous movements that has about a 5 to 10% impact on total daily energy expenditure. Exercise, depending on how much you exercise, has about a 5 to 10% impact. And then another component is the thermic effect of feeding, or how many calories you burn to digest, absorb your food, which is also about a 5 to 10% impact. And those are important when we think about if you're trying to modify your metabolism, those 5 to 10% can make a difference. But ultimately, the largest contributor is RMR or metabolic resting metabolic rate. On the reverse, I know, you know, if we think about the majority of women, 
I used to think a long time ago, like, well, if I didn't exercise, I shouldn't eat very much, you know, because I didn't burn many calories. But in actuality, you burn a lot of calories just sitting and thinking and your normal basic function, which is why that feeding component is so important, even if you don't have a high activity level. Mm -hmm. And I think that the formula for resting metabolic rate is primarily just your lean body mass, some fraction of your lean body mass. There are some, actually the majority of them don't even incorporate lean body mass. It's just age, height, weight, and sex. Okay. And when you are at rest, just lying in bed, what's taking your body so much energy to do? I would say the majority of data, I mean, your organs require a lot of energy. Your brain requires a lot of energy and people forget that. I always laugh, like if you spent all day thinking really hard and working, that actually expends quite a few calories. And then just basic metabolic organ function requires a lot. Body temperature changes. Maintaining homeostasis of the body requires a lot of calories. Yeah, I actually remember hearing that chess players burned an amazing amount during tournaments. Probably. I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. Well, that's a great overview of metabolism. And I think we cleared up a lot about what that word actually means and the different components of it. One last question on that is, when you have people that have different body set points, how different are their measured metabolic rates? You were saying it's not often as different as you expect. What are some of the things that you found when comparing people who have higher body set points and lower body set points? Well, if you look at just body size, the larger people will have a higher metabolic rate. But if you start to look at individuals of the same size, that's where you start to see bigger influences of things like what is their day-to-day -day activity and muscle mass, what medication, some of those aspects. The other piece that we look at a lot in my laboratory is not just metabolic rate, but also what type of fuel are they using. So for example, at rest, we should all be utilizing fat for fuel, for kind of energy and that's highly impacted by hormones, so estrogen, that women tend to burn more fat at rest than men. We also have higher body fat stores. But things like chronic dietary intake impacts that. So for example, if I, as a female, am meant to burn mostly fat at rest, but I have a diet that's very high in processed carbohydrates and I have a lot of glucose in my blood all the time, then I won't be burning fat. I'll be utilizing the glucose that I'm feeding myself. And we see some of that change as women age due to the changes in estrogen in that they don't burn as much fat as they normally did or used to. And there's some diet and exercise approaches there to help. Fat burning doesn't always mean fat loss, but it does contribute. Like if I'm not burning as much fat at rest, then that could lead to fat accumulation. And what about this idea about your metabolism being affected by dieting? Yes, yeah, so we have looked at this and I think it's a very fascinating area that still needs a lot of work. And so a lot of the early models would look more at kind of chronic dietary restriction, such as an eating disorder or even a lot of work with wrestlers, kind of the yo-yo dieting. And we've looked at even physique competitors because of that model of decrease in weight gain. And it does decrease metabolism, meaning it does slow down. But the other things that are incorporated in that, it very much influences things like hunger hormones. And so once the caloric restriction piece has stopped, there's very much a delay in our ability to remain full 
once we've eaten something and our cravings for sweet things are still elevated because there's a lag in hormones once you do feed it adequately. So it's not just necessarily metabolic rate. That's a fascinating area of research for sure. Mm -hmm. So let's move on to the exercise area of the discussion and just talk about it's so overwhelming because there's so many different ways to exercise. So how, and I'm sure there's no one size fits all prescription, right? But how do you think about it for yourself? And then what are the considerations for what you should be prioritizing at your stage of life and your goals? Absolutely. So we study a lot of exercise interventions and a lot of my work focuses on high intensity interval training. And what we've seen over the last, you know, 10 plus years is that it's a really effective way in a short, feasible time frame to not only support cardiovascular health, but also to stimulate muscle and a number of metabolic changes. Interestingly, too, a lot of times we'll have women that respond what we call paradoxically to exercise, like they may gain fat and lose muscle and HIT or interval training seems to overcome that. In general, HIT can be applied in everyone's lifestyle and it can be very practical. Like we've implemented it in cancer patients and obese men and women and osteoarthritis. Like that high intensity interval training is a very good way to see results quite quickly um, that targets both the heart and the muscle. So how do you define high intensity interval training? That's a great question. There's a lot of different approaches, but generally for like, if we're talking about the general public, I like to recommend a one minute hard, one minute easy protocol because anyone can do anything for a minute. When you look at some of the other, like Tabata is really popular, which is usually repeated bouts of 10 to 20 seconds, depending on how it's laid out. And that is just not long enough to tap into some of the metabolic energy stores that might be helpful for overall health and wellness. So slightly longer work ratio. And you could do that one minute running or on a bike or swimming or anything, as long as you're doing it 100% or so that you know at the end of the minute you can't give anymore. Yeah, it doesn't have to be super scientific. Anything that you can't sustain for longer than a minute and then you rest a minute. And really the premise is that your heart rate is at a higher level than you would be able to sustain for more longer term. If you're actually doing interval training right, you shouldn't be able to do it more than a couple times a week. You know, I get a lot of people like, I don't want to do that. I want to just go run or walk. And that's great. But incorporating some of this higher intensity a couple times a week can be really helpful. And even on the other side, which makes sense is resistance training. Heavy resistance training is another really effective and important thing particularly for women to include as they age, not only does it help muscle, but it also helps bone, which decreases as we age. So as a typical busy mom, what's the minimum dose? A lot of people are going to be asking, how little can I get away with and still get benefits, both from the HIT and from the resistance work? That's a great question. I mean, and honestly, what a lot of my research focuses on, because nobody has time to exercise every day for an hour. Consistency is the most important, particularly for perimenopausal women. So I would just say even doing once a week is better than nothing. We've looked a lot at twice a week of something like interval training. If you do what I mentioned, like 10 bouts of one minute on, one minute off, it's 20 minutes twice a week. If you can add in some resistance training, great. But it goes back to, I think a lot of times women are like, well, I didn't do it this week, so I'm just going to stop. 
but the consistency. So a small goal that you can do. And I would say it's sometimes too making sure, like, I don't know about you, but I always have mom guilt. Like, should I exercise? But prioritizing 20 minutes has a huge impact on how you'll feel 10 years from now. And so that give and take of like, make sure you prioritize your time, even just a small amount, because it actually will have a significant impact long term. That's great advice. Any last words of advice for those who are looking to optimize their health long term with exercise? I mean, I would say don't be afraid. I think women often will be aware of burning calories for exercise, but it's really not about that or it shouldn't be just about that. It's really trying to improve the muscle and the bone for lifelong health. And we get those through things like resistance training and that interval style exercise can support that. So can other types of exercise. So, I mean, I think it's really prioritizing something and finding that habit that works for you and consistency. Like we are what our daily choices are. And so prioritizing ourselves, I think is really important. You just made me think back to this sort of skinny fat person who maybe doesn't know how to specifically target. Maybe they haven't ever thought about fitness because they have the silhouette that they're supposed to have supposed to in quotes. What's your advice for that group of people? It goes back to targeting muscle mass. That doesn't mean women won't ever be huge. And it's really to help protect the skeleton and make sure that that muscle is active with glucose. And so I would tell them the same thing. It's not about how you look, just why like if you have excess fat, you can still be very healthy. It's about protecting the musculoskeletal system and really, I wouldn't say building muscle, but maintaining that strong muscle can really be helpful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I'm at a stage of life where I'm thinking more about the long term than the short term. And I think the sooner we do that, the better. Absolutely. And I mean, I have days too. I'm like, well, I guess I'm just going to go for a run. It's easier. I need it for my mental health, but it's definitely not as good for what I need metabolically and for my body. And so I try and make sure, okay, well, yes, so you need that for your mental health, which is great. And there's lots of benefits, but incorporating some sort of high intensity and or resistance training a couple times a week is very important, particularly as we age as women. Well, thank you again for your time, Dr. Smith Ryan. This has been a really informative and really motivating conversation. Thanks so much. 